Well, we, we both know that this is always a challenging moment in a, in a new relationship since you don't know me, could be to your advantage. Uh, I don't know you, it may be to my greater advantage, but we're here to sort of bridge that gap and to spend the time in studying God's Word with you. And it's my privilege to be here. My wife is somewhere in the house. Uh, do I embarrass her? There, there she is right there. Yeah, yeah. I look around during the greeting time, but she's only four foot nothing, and I couldn't see her over the crowd. No, that's my wife. She's actually five foot tall. We've been married for 41 years. We have two children. And if you want to know what grace is all about, you're looking at her right back there because she has put up with me for all this time and, and been a partner in, in ministry and in the journey as well. And we're going we're gonna to make the most out of our, our time today. Uh, I bring you greetings, actually not just from myself, but because of those I work with from the uh, Charleston Baptist Association and the South Carolina Baptist Convention and the North American Mission Board. Because I retired last year after 40-something years of pastoral ministry, and now I'm in this season of life to help churches that are in that season of life when they're looking around trying to assess where they are and where they want to go and how they need to get there. And uh, so I'm, I'm enjoying this journey and, and so grateful for the invitation to be here to be a part of this. And, of course, you know, one of the challenges is, is always how do, you, how do you start a new relationship like this when, when you really don't know each other? And uh, I appreciate the fact they brought a stool out for me for this service. It wasn't here in the first service. And, and I'm wondering whether somebody thinks at my advanced stage of life I can't stand up for two services or not. Of course, don't answer that. And I'm wondering, does Kurt Bradford use this stool when he's here? No, really? Does he wear socks when he's here? Oh, man, that's, that's like, like a twofer for him. He's upside down. He's, I'm privileged to know him as a friend. But anyway, I appreciate the stool. We, we may or may not use that. So anyway, so what's a good note for a, a visiting preacher to start on that sort of gets us on the same page? And, and so we know we're here about spiritual food and soul food, so I figured let's talk about food here to start with. And uh, <laughs> yeah, see, it works. We're already friends now, some of you. It's like, do, do, do we have any Twinkie fans in the house yeah, yeah, that, that you'll confess to it? That's right. Uh, spouses, close your eyes, and the rest of you can raise your hand too. I, I went back because there's, there's actually a point to this besides you know looking at that. I, I went back to sort of learn the history behind Twinkies, and uh, I was really surprised at what I didn't know. I, I'm, I'm not a real Twinkie fan. I have eaten my share of those in my life, though. But it's actually 98 years ago, to sort of put it back, in 1920, a man by the name of James DeWar went to work for a, a bakery as a delivery person. And, and within in 10 years, he was actually vice president of the company. And we know what happened in October of, of, of 1929. The, the stock market crashed and entered the Great Depression. And uh, so he's working for this company as vice president in, in 1930. And one of the products they produced was, was like a, stra uh, a strawberry shortcake finger kind of thing. And so they produced that with, with a strawberry filling, but that was seasonal. So here they are in, in 1931, and he's looking at all this equipment that's sitting there doing nothing. And, um, and he thought, well, we need to put that stuff to work because it's the Great Depression, and you know, we need to do all that we can. And so he came up with this idea to invent a, a, new, a new item. And so he was on his way to a marketing meeting with the company. It's like, so what are we going to call this thing? You're going to love this. And he drove by, and he saw a sign for Twinkle Toe Shoes. And so he got the idea to call them Twinkies after your toes. Now, I hope that encourages your appetite right now. About... <laughs> That's right. Don't think of the filling as jam or anything. It's, it's a... 
that, that was a moment of inspiration. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And, and, so, and so they started putting a, a banana pudding filling in those. And, and that worked for, of course, it was an immediate hit. And I learned, too, that the shelf life back then was two days. And so in the stores, they had to, to rotate their stock that often. And, and then when the war broke out, World War II, then the government took control of all of the bananas and, as a part of that stuff. And so they had to come up with another thing to put inside, and they came up with the, the cream filling that we now know. So here's where our education expands, because I just thought there's basic Twinkies. Either it's a Twinkie or it's not a Twinkie. And so this is what I learned. Some of you may know this if you're a real aficionado, that they, they brought back the, the banana cream filling. Uh, I saw like banana cream. If you bake, I'd like a banana cream pie. That would be really good. Uh, <laughs> I get, all right. And they brought back the strawberry filling. I'm, I'm, I'm good with strawberries. And then they brought this with, with orange scream filling. I'm not sure really what that's supposed to be about, but anyway. And then these, uh, the key lime slime interiors. Uh, yeah, a, a key lime. Did, did y'all know this, that Twinkies came and all this Okay, some of you may become Twinkie fans after this, and, you know, we're thinking about lunch and shut the preacher up so we can get out of here. Um, <laughs> and then cotton candy Twinkies. And this is pumpkin spice cheesecake Twinkie. And then devil's food Twinkie. I like this, a pure beef-centered Twinkie. Now, I could be a Twinkie fan. Guys, this has got meat involved. <laughs> We're not done. Now, deep-fried Twinkies. Now, this has to be the State Fair of Texas. I happen to be from Texas, spent 27 years in Maryland, and I know the State Fair, they have this thing. They'll deep-fry anything. You can get, get deep-fried butter. <laughs> so it's got to be there anyway. But that almost sounds good. Uh, fat fried fat. I mean, how, how bad can that be? Uh, then there's bacon fried Twinkies. Isn't bacon like the food group of chocolates? So it doesn't matter what you put it with, it, it, it makes it edible. Here, here. And then a Twinkie burger. Uh, supposedly Burger King did this, and it's like, okay, I can, I can do that. And for the, the real people who are serious about this, you can actually get a Hostess Twinkie cookbook and, and, and create your... I'm thinking... Would a jalapeno-filled Twinkie be good? Are you with me? Now that you're spiritually inspired, let's, let's move on. I mean, there's, there's a reason for that. Because what makes a Twinkie really a Twinkie is what? What's in the middle? What's in the middle? Now, you know, personally, individually, we're, we're all doing our own journey thing. And we're at various stages on the journey based on how old we actually are. Now, we know how the journey began because we have a birth certificate and there's stories about the beginning. We really don't know what the last chapter looks like. Now, I told the earlier service because there are more people that are well under my age than in this service. Thank you for joining me for this. Um, that, that those that are under the age of, what do we say, 50, 40? You know, they look at the rest of us and go, listen, you're closer to the last chapter of your book than I am to mine. But you don't know that. You just don't know that. I mean, today could be the last chapter. But what, what the last chapter looks like isn't written in the last chapter. It's written in the middle. So you and I have a, a story that's, that we know what the beginning is like. We hope what the ending is like. 
But the question is, who's writing the middle story for us? Or in this case, because of my being here, is this church has a story. It has a beginning, and it's got bunches of chapters, and I've heard some of those chapters. And you know what the last chapter, you want that to be, but what determines the last chapter is being written right now. And the question is, what are you writing in the middle? So if you want to follow in your Bible, I'll put all the text up on the screen. And we're going to fill, you have an outline in your material there. So um, I'm, a, I'm a teacher, so I do fill in the blanks. I control the television sets or like outer limits. I control the horizontal, you know. So anyway, stay with. And, and, and we're going to be looking in 2 Kings chapter 6 and chapter 7. Not all of, of either one of those. And if you're not familiar with this Old Testament account, there's a whole lot of backstory. I mean, there, there's the backstory of creation and God making all things, and then there's the backstory of God taking Abraham and calling him out of a pagan culture and, 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 and raising up a people of his own and creating a whole uh, slew of folks while in Egyptian slavery. And there's the backstory of God using Charlton Heston to lead them out to the, the promised land, and you're old if you know what that means. So. We're on the same page. And, um, and then there's the backstory story of, of, of the period of, of, of judges with, with Israel, and then they wanted a king, and so there's the story of the, the birth of the kingdom. And then there was the story of the division of the kingdom after Solomon died under the leadership of Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the northern kingdom and the, the, the southern kingdom. And, and this story takes place after that. In a period when there are kings, there are no longer judges, but there are prophets. And, and one of the things that's important to do, not just in this text, but any time that you're, you're studying, as I'm walking through the hallways this morning and all the Sunday school classes and people wondering who that stranger is out in the hallway, and some guy says, I mean, you look really official. Are you like singing today? And I'm, well, I don't think so. I don't think Brian would want that. Uh, but, but, you know, all that studying stuff is that how, you make the, how do you make Scripture relevant to, to you? And especially when you're reading a narrative passage, and, and for most of us, that's, that's our favorite reading because it's, it's storylines. It's about people and times and places and circumstances. And the way that we do that is by asking the question, who am I in this story? So whether you're reading the parable, all of us are somebody in that story. And so when you're reading an Old Testament narrative account like this one, the question is, who are you personally in this story? Or, or who is Highland Park Baptist Church in this story? Now, because there's a prophet in the story, I get to be the prophet. So y'all have to decide who else you happen to be in this story. And so we're talking about writing this middle story for ourselves personally or for a faith community like a church. So middle stories, are they're contextualized. They don't, they don't exist in a vacuum. So follow along. Is I'll read on this screen one time and I'll read on that screen one time. So we'll read together. 2 Kings chapter 6. Now, the king of Aram was warring against Israel. Now it came about after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. The middle story writing part always has a context. for, And it doesn't matter whether you're 10 years old or 80 years old. It has a context. And in this case, there are two particular contexts that are relevant. So it's, there, there's the context of circumstance. And that's a, that's a driving component of this story. The circumstance is that you have a divided kingdom. You have the northern kingdom that the capital is Samaria. And, and if, you, if you've been in vacation Bible school or you've sat in Sunday school or you've been to enough preaching services that you know in the history of Israel, you and I read those accounts and we look back at that and we scratch our heads and go, how stupid could they really be? And the answer is very. 
how they could see what God did, how they could be a part of what God did, and then turn around and do some of the boneheadedest things that they did to anger God. And when God got angry with Israel, it didn't matter whether it was the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom or the whole kingdom, he would what? He would, he would punish them. And one of his, it seems to be one of his favorite devices for punishing Israel was to take a pagan country and use them to invade, to send a, a, an army in. And, and we know ultimately it, it led to the Babylonian captivity because of Israel's disobedience. And so we have that kind of a circumstance. You, you've got, a, you've got a, a northern kingdom that has, you know, they're, they're offending God. And so God sends the, the Aramean army under Ben-Hadad to come and lay siege to the capital. And I actually saw a picture, I think it was this morning, it may have been last night when I was, I was looking at Samaria, and it's, it, and it's not a flat plain out there, it's you know, sort of rolling hills. And, and so I'm pretty sure that Samaria was, was set in a strategic place, you know, with walls and, and, and an easy place to, to defend. And so the Aramean army, when they came, they didn't have to tear the city down, they just had to make sure that nobody could come or go. And so it was an unpleasant circumstance of an invading army who didn't have to destroy the city, they could just let time and circumstance take its place because one of the circumstances that we're going to read about is that there was also a famine. <laughs> so it wasn't like the people in Samaria said, well, we can live out of our vegetable garden, you know, for a while. It's like there was a famine, which meant the ground wasn't producing. So the circumstances of a life or of a church's life are influencing the story that's being written in the middle. And then by the characters. And, and this is sort of a really interesting part because through all of Scripture, and, and I was, when I was having my quiet time this morning, I'm reading the book of Acts again, and, and I was just struck profoundly by how many anonymous people there are in Scripture. Men and women whom, whose names we do not know, who were substantial players in the work of God with His people. And so in this story, we have a cast of characters that are contributing to, to the writing of this story. Um, most of them, we don't have names. We have gender references, um, but we don't have names. So you've got, you've got people that we're going to read about in just a moment that, that, that are shaping this story. And then you have, a, you have the king of, of the northern kingdom of Israel there in Samaria, who's a part of the story. And so whether you and I want to admit to it, but in our writing our story, our church writing the story, is that the people who are the cast of characters are influencing the story that's written. Now, they don't dictate the story that's written, but they certainly shape the story that's written. And then the question we ask ourselves, so who is it we want to influence the writing of our story? So middle stories are contextualized, and we've already seen the immediate context. Second is that middle stories are the revealing, because it's, it's here... The, the start is already history. And we're in this process without a script. Because the cast of characters in, in 2 Kings chapter 6 or in chapter 7, is they, they don't have a manual for doing this. You know, it's like the king can't go, go to the library and pull a book off the shelf and say, what do you do when, you know, King ben Hadaz besieged a city and you have a, you have a famine going on? They're having to play this by ear. And, and so because there's not a script and it's a challenging set of circumstances, it, it tells a lot about not just the circumstance, we, that's dictated, but the characters and what they do. So follow the storyline as we pick up our reading. There was a great, I like the fact, there was, there was just a famine, wasn't just a little famine, there was a great famine in Samaria. 
And behold, they besieged it. Until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. And a fourth of a cab of doves dung for five shekels of silver. Pause. Now, if you're asking why I'm putting archaic descriptions about measurements up there as part of this, this is out of the New American Standard Bible. Um, my question to you, does it really matter how much it is of those items? D does it change or affect your attitude or disposition about that? So don't get worked up about some place. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king said to her, What's the matter with you? And she, she answered, this, this woman said to me, uh, again, anonymous, we don't know the name. Give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him and I said to him, to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But she had hidden her son. And when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. And now he was passing by on the wall and the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. Then he said, may God do so to me and more also. If the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. There is so much contradiction in this narrative that's being revealed by these particular people. All right, let's fill in some blanks. They reveal our values. And, and, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't in my cursor reading of this. It wasn't the first time I studied or preached it. But, but the more I've, I've looked at this passage, it, I, I'm fleshing it out with who we are and, and what, what we're like and our disposition, our attitude, and saying, you know, if we're in an environment and a, and a culture like this, there are some things when things are going well that we will, we will take a stand on or against or for. It's like food. Let's talk about our favorite spiritual item here, food. Let's talk about food. Now, uh, I, I hope I'm not oversimplifying this, but generally... Men have much simpler diets than women. Would, would you say that, that that's basically true? I, I'm one of those, I'm the prototypical guy, give me meat and potatoes and, you know, I'm pretty good to go. As long as there's some dessert that goes along with it, meat and potatoes really, really does work. I, I'm not a, you know, I eat some vegetables because they're good for me, not because I like those things. I can remember the first time I ate asparagus. I had my appendix out. I was, I don't know, nine years old, maybe ten years old. I was in the hospital recovering, and they brought me that stalk stuff on a plate. I didn't know what it was, so I thought, let's try this. Uh, I don't like asparagus. That was the only time I ever tried it, ever ate it. I'm like George Bush when it comes to broccoli. I'm, I'm just, you know, that, that green stuff just to do. You know, we, we, can, we can stake out a position like that. Say, I'm just, you know, I don't have to eat that stuff. I'm not going to eat that stuff. You know, Brother Bryant makes me feel bad when we go out and eat because I'm the one that gets a big greasy burger and he doesn't. And, and, but I get over it real quickly. I'm, 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 okay. I'm okay with that. So what's that have to do with this? We've got issues here about what people are, are being forced to eat as a result of a siege and, and, and a famine. And you can bet good money, even if you're not a betting Baptist, that there are some people in that day, under that circumstances, before that took place, said, you know what, if I had to eat that, I'd rather die. You mean eat a, a donkey's head? No, thank you. I'd just rather starve to death. Or, I hope we can say this, bird drop soup. 
But the middle story is revealing some things. Because it was so desperate. People that I know who would have said, not on your life, would say, where's that? And I'm also thinking, too, I didn't mention this the first time. I'm also thinking, too, the entrepreneurs that are in Samaria at that time going, people are starving to death. How can I make a buck? I have some birds. Look. My donkey is starving to death. What can I do with leftover? There are values that are being revealed in the writing of the middle story. I, let me back up one. I've got to tell this story because it's a story on my wife. You know, we, we spent 27 years in Maryland. And uh, Maryland's known for seafood. But it's known for one particular item that comes out of seafood. You know what that is? Crabs. Thank you. God bless you. Any of y'all had a Maryland crab cake? A cream of crab soup? Okay. So we, we, moved, we moved in 1990 to, to Maryland Pastor Church and, and uh, moved there in, in June. And we weren't there long until the young couples were talking about getting together and having steamed crabs. And so after, I don't know, the third or fourth Sunday, I said, hey, why don't y'all, when are y'all going to invite us? And so, well, come on over this afternoon. We'll have steamed crabs. Um, how many of you have done this in Maryland? Thank you. God bless you. You'll, you'll know this. You'll appreciate this. So anyway, the young, these several young couples, they invite us over to their house, and they order this stuff, and they, they, they bring it in, it's, and they just dump it out on, the, on this big picnic table, this big pile of steamed crabs buried in Old Bay seasoning. And most of them have some vinegar or some melted butter, and so it's like, show me how to do it. Now, they don't, they, they don't give you a plate, okay? They don't give you a fork or a spoon. You may get a knife for prying open the shell, but that's, and you get a mallet. If, if you want to know what barbaric eating is like, you just go to a crab feast in, in, in Maryland. The Vikings would have been proud. Oh. So anyway, we sit down, and we're, we're trying to be culturally relevant, and so you know, I dig it, and I love this stuff. I still love this stuff. And my wife was doing really well in the midst of this, she looked over and saw green and yellow stuff dripping off my elbows. Now, they call that mustard I got news for you. It's not. I'm, I'm not going to enlighten you on that. But um, it revealed our, my, my wife doesn't, she, don't, she does not do steam crabs now, you know. I'm good with it. But it also reveals our perceptions. And this, this really struck me, too. Uh, apart from what people were willing to eat is, is, you know, when they, even cannibalism. Cannibalism that people under distressing circumstances will do what they never thought they would do because they're starving to death. And so you have the woman that sees the king out on the wall and she appeals to the king and says, King, help us. And, and, you know, what happened? And they tell him what happened. And, and he said, he said, who am I? If, and I, it, this just struck me as, as pure irony. If, if the Lord doesn't help, how do you expect me to help? So he's invoking the name of the Lord in this set of circumstances. And on top of that, he has underneath his robe... The clothing of repentance. Now, anybody here grew up on a farm? You know what a toe sack is? Yeah, it's a burlap. Yeah, it's burlap. Now, you, you know, you could, potatoes came in it. You could pick cotton with it. Or in, in extreme circumstances, you could actually make clothing out of it. Now, trust me, you didn't want underwear made out of burlap. Okay. But that was the whole point in the Old Testament. It was an unpleasant cloth against your bare skin. And, and Israel knew well that when they were repenting, they needed to demonstrate that repentance by doing that. So here's the king 
who's invoking the name of the Lord and said, if the Lord doesn't come through, you know, how am I going to help? He's wearing the clothing and says, I get this. I get this. And then what does he do? If I don't have the head of the prophet of God on a platter today, I don't know what's wrong with me. The man had some strange perceptions about himself and about God and about the circumstances that is contributing to the writing of this story. All right, we've got to keep moving. <laughs> Middle stories determine endings. Middle stories determine it, It's like I, I went back to show you how spiritual I am. I, I went back and, and, and read the account of the, the tortoise and the hare. Aesop's fable. You're familiar with this. Now, why it's not a turtle and a rabbit, I don't know. The guy wasn't from Texas. I do know that. Um, the tortoise and the hare. And we, we all know the story. It's only about this long. It doesn't matter which version. You, it's only about that long. About a, a, a speedy mammal and a, a not-so-speedy, you know, a, a turtle that drives like some of the people around Charleston. And, and so, you know, they're going to have this contest. And, and so they start off, and it's laughable. It's laughable. But we know, what, what's the end of the story? What's the end of the story? Yeah, the turtle, the tortoise actually wins. But it's not determined at the end. It's determined in the middle. Because the middle part of the story has the rabbit doing what? Oh, I got this made. He is so far back and I'm so far ahead. Just let me pull over and find a shady place to take a nap. And he slept the race away. And he woke up. The turtle wasn't across the line, but was too close for him to recover. Middle stories determine endings. Let's pick up our story here. Then Elisha said, listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel. And two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. And the royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? This is the king's right-hand man saying, I don't even think God can do this. Then he said, Behold... Elisha said, Behold, you will see it with your eyes, but you will not eat of it. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why do we sit here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, then the famine is in the city, and we will die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now therefore come and let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we will live, and if they kill us, we will but die. And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans, and when they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold... There was no one there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses. Even the sound of a great army. So that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel is hired against the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Therefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even, even the camp, just as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and ate and drank and carried from there silver and gold and clothes and went and hid them. And they returned and entered another tent and carried from there also and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news, but we are keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. And they did. So the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. Then a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Endings are being written in the middle. This is, this is the real middle part of the story. You talk about anonymous characters. They're anonymous, undesirable characters. They're four leprous men who, because of their disease and, and the law of Israel, 
they were outcast from the community. They couldn't be in physical contact with people. So they live a, a, a subsistence existence as it is. And so they're caught in the middle of a siege in the midst of a famine with people that don't want them around. <laughs> All right, let's, let's fill in our blanks as we flesh this out. By, by testing our faith. So we have this, this, Elisha knows that the king wants his head on a platter. And so in chapter 7, the first thing Elisha says, just cool your jets. This, by this time tomorrow, food is going to be cheap and plentiful. And the man who heard the king says, if the Lord doesn't help, there is no help, has no faith at all. He says, listen, God can't even fix the problem. And Elisha says, <laughs> I wish you hadn't said that. He is, but you're not going to get to enjoy it. The story turns four rejects, outcasts. They have no illusions about how people view them or feel about them or think about them. And they're looking at their situation before and they're sitting out there and their skin and bones and scabs. And one of them says, guys, this just ain't working. If we don't do something, we're dead. And one says, well, what do you want us to do? Go inside where they don't want us, they hate us, they're going to reject us. And he says, that's not going to work. They're dying too. Another says, well, you know what? There's something we've never tried before. Right out there is an enemy. They got plenty of food. Why don't we go try that? Now, they were smart. They were strategic. They went at twilight when you couldn't really see. And, and let your imagination help you here. They went out to the perimeter and the shadows. of. Hey! They see tents and horses and donkeys and fires and, and nothing. Inching their way forward. Until they finally came to a tent and somebody looked inside and went, there's nobody here. Man, look at that food. And those four lepers went in they had a buffet, man. It was all you could eat. And it was free. And, and when they couldn't waddle out and they took, you know, took the valuables out there and went out and hit them and went in. They didn't want the food in the next tent, but they wanted the stuff. And they got some more stuff. And, out. and at some point the conscience... Uh, got the best one of them and said, you know what, this isn't right. We may be hated and despised and rejected, but listen, we have people back there that are starving to death. We need to go let them know what's going on. I mean, that's what faith is about. It, it's, it's doing the improbable that God can do the impossible. And so they went back and reported, and the king said, it's a trick, it's a trick, it's a trick. They're trying to draw us out of the city. Let's, so let's get the two chariots to get the last of the healthy horses and go see what happened to them. And so they went and found a trail of debris from the camp to the river where they'd crossed. They came back and says, boss, guess what? They are gone. Now, obviously, somebody got a report somewhere along the way about why they ran away. They heard sounds that God has generated. You see, in the middle story that's writing the ending, it's, it's a test of our faith. What are we willing to trust God for? And then finally, by challenging conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom. You're not going to catch me use the, use the expression common sense. You know why? Because it's not. Are you with me? If it was, more people would have it. Do they? No. It is uncommon sense. Common stupidity? Yes, maybe. It's a... Conventional wisdom in writing the script would not pick four lepers as the heroes that God would use. Which means for you personally, wherever you are in your life, or you as a church, where you are in your lifeline and your life cycle, 
Conventional wisdom would say, well, you know, we need to do this and this and this and this and this and this. And this. Listen, when you study through Scripture, I think you may be surprised at how many times God chooses to use unconventional wisdom. Because he wants people to trust in him, not their own wisdom. And God used these four lepers to demonstrate that God is faithful for those who are willing to believe his word. And listen, that poor guy who says, God can't fix this, guess what? He didn't get to eat. He got trampled to death by the, by the crowd. All right, let me tell you a story here and we'll wrap up. Um, this, is, uh, this is a picture of Kevin Queen. Kevin um, was a, a friend and uh, he became a member of our last church. And matter of fact, his memorial service uh, two years ago was the last one that I did in, in Maryland. And uh, so Kevin had come for years. He was, a, he was the head chef at a local eatery, a seafood place uh, in the area that everybody knew. And, and so he was well-known. He was well-respected and liked. And so he, he had lots of friends. And, uh, but he, and he attended our church for years and came faithfully. And the only fault I had against him was he was, he was a Washington Redskins fan. But I, you know, I overlooked that. And, and, uh, um, and so two years ago, uh, Kevin was diagnosed with cancer. He'd had some pain issues, and they couldn't figure out what it was. They finally went in and diagnosed it with cancer. And it was so advanced that, you know, he went through the radical treatment, but you know what that's like. It just it took the life out of him and didn't give him any. And so those last several months of his life, I spent a lot of time with Kevin. Just, you know, getting. I said, you know, you always promised to take me to a Redskins game. That didn't happen, and so we spent a lot of time in fellowship. And I'd heard a story about Kevin that um, something that had happened in his life and and, and at some point, he had become so depressed about life circumstance that he had, he had down a couple of fifths of something. And it doesn't matter what, because when you're measuring in fifths, the outcome is the same. And he had driven to one of the famous bridges uh, around the Washington, D.C. area, parked his car on the, the shoulder of the road, and walked way out in the bridge. It was in the middle of the night, walked way out the bridge to end his life. And he jumped. What he didn't realize was um, it was just mud down below that bridge. He didn't get a scratch. He didn't get a bruise. He got stuck in the mud all night long. And when the day broke and he sobered up, he decided obviously God wasn't through with him yet. And he drug himself out of the mud back to his car, too much story to go into, and made his way home convinced that that God had something for him. And eventually he came to be a part of the life of our church. Uh, when I was ministering to him, I, I assumed because of his ethnicity and some of his family stuff that he'd been raised. And, and that he'd come to know the Lord at a young age and just, you know, sort of gotten away. And so one day I, I asked him, I said, so Kevin, tell me about when, when Christ was made real to you. And he said, it was after I started coming to your church. And so about three years ago, I got to baptize him and he became a part of our church. Now listen, when we had church dinners, you always wanted Kevin to be there because he brought the mad. I never got any of it. You know, I'm the last guy at the end of the... I never got Kevin's food. Um, and so when, when, when Kevin died, um, we had the, the celebration of life, and there were about 300 people that were present, family, friends, people from all over. And I always have somebody do a biography, you know, tell the story of Kevin's life, and then ask for people to come share their testimonies. I, and I said, tell me your best Kevin story. And so people got up and they shared Kevin's stories. And then, I, and then I preached and talked about the Kevin I knew in the context of the gospel. And I came and started telling that story. Because we wouldn't be there celebrating his life if God hadn't been gracious in that moment. And so I'm starting telling that story and the people in the, in the crowd are going. 
And it sort of dawned on me that something was amiss here. And I stopped and I said, y'all haven't heard this, have you? His family had never heard the story. His closest friends had never heard the story. And so I got to finish the story and to talk about the grace of God that spared his life to bring him to the place that we could celebrate his going home. We're all in the middle of having our story written before we get to the end. The question is, who's writing your story? And what does that story look like? And what role does Jesus play in that story? I want you to bow your heads. Because this is a time for you to do business with God. And, and just ask the Lord, Lord, who am I in, in this story? And, and what is it that I need to do that, that you might write the script that I need and that I want so that when my day comes and the last chapter is written, it, it is the outcome that I desire. So what business do I need to do with you? Is it repentance? Is it confession? Is it celebration? Whatever is it I need to do, Lord. So as I lead us in prayer, then you do whatever business is that you need to do with God right now. So, Father, I'm grateful that the message of grace really transcends culture and relationships and time and circumstances so that that I can come here as a guest speaker and, and not knowing the details of anyone's life here and yet knowing that you have a word because it's your word and that you're wanting to do a work in every heart in, in, in writing a story in the middle that we're a part of right now. So Father, help us to be receptive, not doubt what you can do, not being afraid of who you will use not being afraid to take a step of faith into the unknown and the uncertainties of the unconventional that you might do a work that only you can do in us. Father, for those that today might say that I, I don't know what it is to, to have a relationship with Jesus, that, that you would enable them by your spirit to say, Lord, I'm a sinner, but I believe that Jesus died for my sins too and came back to life. I now commit myself to him as Savior and Lord. That you help that person begin writing that new story of grace right now. But then for the rest of us, Father, for whom that is old business, that whatever it is we need to do right now, empower and enable us to do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen.